Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. My name is Susan Rocco, and I'm in the studio every week sitting down with some wonderful women in the Philadelphia area and across the country as well. And I'm very excited to have a friend uh, and a wonderful woman in with me today, and her name is Heidi Gray, and she is president and co-owner of the 200% Company, which serves small to mid-sized companies uh, with their sales growth. Welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me. Um, I want to get right into talking a little bit about you and learning about uh, your background and where you grew up and, and where you went to school. So okay. why don't you start there? Well, I grew up in Philadelphia. I'm a Philly girl. Good. Um, I was born in the Northeast and went to school in the suburbs. Uh, then I went to Penn. I lived in West Philadelphia and I've lived here all my life. That's great. We like Philly girls in here. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about your family, your family background. Mom and dad, did they work? Um, what did they do? Well, you know, I was thinking about my father this morning because it's 93 degrees out there, and he was an air conditioning contractor. Oh, okay. And a lot of our family life revolved around the seasons. Right. Uh, when you work for, when you live with a person who works in a trade, it depends on the weather, and uh, my father was often not home. Uh, from May to September, he was working often seven days a week, wow. um, 12, 13-hour days. And I certainly think that that was an influence on me later in life, recognizing what it means to do hard work. Right. Um, my mother was a stay-at-home mom mm -hmm. um, for my early childhood. And then later in life, um, when I was in high school, my mom went back to school and actually wrote a book um, oh, wow. and had her own trajectory. Yeah, uh, that's wonderful. What yeah. was the book about? It was a story. It was called Manya's Story. Manya is my grandmother, who was a Russian immigrant. Um, and it was the story of uh, the pogroms, which were uh, basically terrorist attacks on Jewish communities in Russia. And her home was burned down, and she had to jump from the roof of a burning synagogue. And there was a whole escape in the middle of the night holding an infant child. So she had a very dramatic experience. Um, transition from Russia to America. And my mother wrote a book about that. It was originally intended to be just a family document, something that would be for us to understand the legacy mm -hmm. of our immigrant roots. But she was in school and her teacher said to her, you know, if you did a little bit of historical research and rounded out the context, you'd have a book. So my mother became a published author and it's actually had two printings. That's wonderful. Yeah, so. And is Manya the, the Russian term for grandmother? No, or Manya was her name. Um, it's okay. actually uh, her English name was Miriam. Um, Manya is a very common Russian name. I think it's the equivalent of Mary. Okay. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, tell me a little bit about some of the activities that you were involved in as a young girl. Well... Um, I wish I could tell you that I was involved in a lot of activities. Um, 
I had an interesting childhood in that at sixth grade, I was in the Philadelphia public schools from kindergarten to sixth grade. After that, um, the Philadelphia public schools went on strike and they were actually closed for two months. So during that time, a lot of kids in my grade went to private school as an alternative because parents were concerned about what would happen for the school year. And my parents made a decision which um, really changed the course of my life. They made a decision to send me to a private school across the city. So even though I lived in the Northeast, I went to school in Lower Merriam. And what school was that? It was called Akiba Hebrew Academy. Oh, okay. Very tiny school. I think there were 30 kids in my grade. Um, and now it's a very well-established private school. It's called Barrack Academy, and it's out on the main line, and it's become a much bigger, uh, much broader uh, community school. But in those days, it was really, I don't want to say a fringe school, but it was considered a very tiny alternative model. Mm-hmm. Um, and although we weren't particularly religious, I think my parents were excited about the idea of us having a Jewish education. Right. Um, but what it also meant is that I had to be at my bus stop at 10 of 7 in the morning, and I didn't get home till after 5 in the afternoons. Mm, that's a long day. So you had kids coming from all over the city, people coming from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, from Center City, from the main line. And what, what it meant for me is that I didn't have school friends, I didn't have classmates where I lived. Right, And because they live so far away, it's not like today where people just get in a car and drive over the bridge. If you had a friend in Cherry Hill, you weren't getting together after school. No. That wasn't happening. No. And my mother didn't drive on the highways, so I was very isolated. Um, And I guess, you know, you asked the question, what activities was I involved in? The truth is there were no after school activities offered in those days at that school. Hmm. Um, And part of the reason was there was no transportation for people to get home. So I literally went to a a day school where at 3.30, people got on their buses. I didn't get home till 5. And my daily routine was go home, set the table. Um, My mom always prepared a sit-down dinner in those days. It was the 70s. And um, after dinner, my job was to clean up the kitchen and then go upstairs and do my homework. So as a young person, unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to develop outside interests. There was no after-school sports. There was really very little even um, within the school day. There Mm -hmm. was gym maybe twice a week. Yeah. But the gym was also an assembly room. Right. Right. It had dual purpose. Yeah. So I think um, the things that I did in high school involved leadership. I was president of my high school. I got involved in an inner-city Um, leadership group where kids from every different high school got together and developed programming and community activities. But that was really the extent of my... Well, those are activities. They are. (laughs) President of the class and (laughs) and organizing, yes, communities outside. (laughs) You know, I guess the difference is when I think about my children and what their daily schedule looks like and the kind of activities that are available. Which is probably overdone, you know, these days. Yeah. Um, And yes, in those days, it certainly felt like I was involved and connected. The other thing is I started selling when I was 14. I was an Avon sales lady. Yeah, I, tell me, t- talk about how did that come to be? You know, I love that at fourteen. Um, gee, I don't even remember how I found out about it. Maybe I saw an ad in the paper, um, but it was one of the few jobs that I could get because you have to be sixteen to get working papers. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to remember. I think I was only fourteen or fifteen. Um. I don't really remember, but I went to a meeting and there were all these women and they signed me up and they trained me and they gave me this little suitcase full of samples. She probably at 14 thought this is the greatest. It was the coolest thing ever. And, <laughs> well, the, and you know what I liked the most? I liked the little tablet where you wrote up the orders. I thought it was, you know, like it was like playing sales lady. Right. You know, you got to be yeah, a cashier. You felt grown up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I went door to door in my neighborhood and then they had an incentive. I think maybe $100 if I referred a friend who also became an Avon sales lady. So my thinking was, okay, look, I have friends who live across the city, mm-hmm. so they won't eat into my market share. Right. <laughs> they're not <laughs> I, in your territory. Yeah, they're not in my territory, so this is okay. 
But what I didn't realize is that most girls at 14 or 15 are not going to knock on other people's doors. So what they did is they would take their samples to school. And we were cannibalizing each other's opportunities at oh, school. Oh, no. Yeah, so it didn't... <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because I never in, in a million years dreamed that I would end up being in sales for my career. And right. yet when I look back at the roots, I think, oh, look. Yeah. <laughs> and people, I remember people would say to me, how do you go to somebody's house and just start talking to a stranger? And I thought, well... I think that's very easy for someone like you, right? I guess I cultivated it. Right. I don't know. Oh, that's great. So, um, so after high school, then you went to Penn. Yeah. And and tell me, what what were your aspirations at that time? Did you have um, in your mind, I'm going to study business, and or did you have something else in mind? I had a vague idea um, that I was interested in women's health care. And where did that come from? Because no one in my family was in healthcare. Um, my best friend in senior year had a work study project. I worked at a elementary school and then worked at Wendy's at night. And my girlfriend worked for an OBGYN. And she would come home and tell me these stories, and they weren't all happy stories, but she talked to me about what it was like to be in a clinical setting and the whole idea of women's health care. And something in, in her stories engaged I found interesting, and I guess for lack of having any other direction, I thought, okay, I don't want to say I'm undecided, so I'll try to come up with an individualized major. That right. was my approach at Penn. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to sound like I was undecided. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of aspirations, you know, we often joke that our kids you know, did a full country, full court press looking for colleges. In our day, that really wasn't done. Right. Um, my parents said, we'll pay for your education as long as you stay in the 215 area code. There you go. So um, I went to Penn because that's where some of the smart kids from Akiba went to school. Mm-hmm. And my best friend's brother went there. Mm-hmm. And I, it's a good school. It's one a good of the school. I don't know that I understood that it was an Ivy League school and what it really meant in terms of its prestige. Mm-hmm. Um I obviously know now, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I didn't know then, but I, I was um, a straight A student um, and I, I was president of my school, so I figured I'd give it a shot. Yeah. Um, and actually, I didn't get in um, early decision. I was deferred. So my senior year, I worked very hard. I did not have the opportunity to take off. You know, some kids get in in junior year and they know what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, so that's how I ended up at Penn. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about what what were some of the challenges for you during those college years? Um, Was there anything that you struggled with? Academics you always seem to do well with. How about on an emotional level? Was there anything or social? Well, I think coming from a high school where there were 35 kids in your senior class, um, there was a part of me that said, well, sure, you were a top student, but you were only competing with 35 people. Uh, so I, I definitely think it's and then getting deferred, mm-hmm. um, which the message that I got was, well, you're interesting, but you're not at the top of our list. Right. So I felt like when I did get accepted that I had gotten in by the skin of my teeth. Um, so I had these conflicting emotions. One was I'm going to prove that I am every bit as capable and able to compete in this new environment. But there was a part of me that thought. I have no idea if my Akiba Hebrew Academy education is going to prepare me to compete at this level. And I had no idea until I got there. Yeah. Um, when I got there, what I found is that there were certainly people who were brilliant um, and had a different type of academic rigor, although Akiba actually was a very um, demanding school. Um, they're, they're very stringent about who they accept, and it was a very academically oriented program. But when I got to school, what I realized is whether the kids are smart or not, it's a question of work ethic. Mm-hmm. And especially freshman year in the 70s, um, there were a lot of people who majored in recreation. Right. Um, so, Still today. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it was a big, bold world. Um, I felt that I had lived a rather cloistered existence. I went to school with white, Jewish middle-class kids and all of a sudden I'm at Penn and there's diversity not to the extent that there is now um, but I loved having 2,000 people in my grade right. I mean I thought that was just incredible um, seeing football players just just the recognition that there were people who 
had completely different experiences mm-hmm. and uh, came from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic lifestyles. So I, I was thrilled by it all. Yeah. Thrilled. Is there anyone that you met that was kind of an eye-opener for you that, that, that you thought, geez, they, they're not anything like me, but, you know, look um, at the connection we have. Well, yeah, on my on my freshman floor. Well, first of all, I met my two closest friends, um, and I'm still lucky to say that they live in Philadelphia, and so my two college roommates are still some of my closest friends, so that's great. Um, next door to me was um, a woman who l- was born in Florida but went to school at one of the prestigious New England prep schools, mm-hmm. and she had had a mental breakdown. So all of a sudden, here I'm the good girl, <laughs> I'm the A student, the kid who's sort of stuck to the program, and I'm living next door to a person who was really still mentally ill. Um, and I'm not sure that I quite understood that she had profound depression because there were days where she would just stay in bed all day, never wake up and go to classes. But I knew that she was really um, different from anyone that I had ever met before. And I think just living next to somebody who was emotionally unstable and had a lot of highs and a lot of lows was just, I guess, as a young person, it was eye-opening and a little scary. Yeah. Um, and then down the hall was a guy named Logan Monroe Chandler III. And let's just say we didn't have any Logans at Kiba Hebrew yeah. Academy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, he was such a curious character because he was just what I thought a prep school boy would look like. He had blonde, curly hair. He rode crew. Um, and he became a good friend. But, it, again, he was just a stereotype come to life in, right. in, on my floor. Yeah. I yeah. think that's one of the most exciting things about going off to college. We all grow up in, in some community somewhere. Right. And typically... We're with people of the same, you know, mind, and 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 then you go out and you see there's this whole new world. I had the same experience at Villanova. Well, I I used to joke that I really didn't know anyone who wasn't Jewish, except for the contractors or the workers who came to our home. And it's not really a nice thing to say, but if you go to a religious high school, by definition, you're in a group of people that's sectioned off from everyone else. That's right. And because. We all lived in different communities. We didn't have the kind of social life that most high schoolers have, where you go to football games and you go to parties and you're all in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have cars, even those of us that got our driver's license. The idea of having your own car, just it really didn't, I guess some people did, but most people that I knew didn't. So there was not a lot of interaction with people outside of our school world on the weekends. So, right, right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your your first job out of college. Huh. My first job out of college, I was a new business sales rep for um, a company called HMO of Pennsylvania. That stands for Health Maintenance Organization. We now call them managed care plans, but in those days it was very revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very new concept, and so selling it, was not just the usual challenges of selling. It was just trying to educate people that it wasn't socialized medicine um, and that we weren't going to take over the world. Right. You know, yeah. Not communism. Right. Um, I actually worked there this summer in between my junior and senior year. Um, an internship? Or? I had, well, they didn't call it an internship because that's a new word. <laughs> you know, all these things that are just taken for granted now, it was very atypical to go to work for a real business. Now, certainly people got jobs at Wendy's or, um, you know, at drugstores. But the idea of actually getting a corporate role um, was not very common. And I think part of it was because we were in a liberal arts college within Penn, and it wasn't quite as pre-professional as schools are now. Where now, if you don't have an internship, you're almost, you know, you're at a deficit. Yeah. Excuse me. So how did you get that? It's interesting that you would ask. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I got a little creative with my major. Um, I thought I wanted to be a midwife. And after my freshman year, I realized that to be a midwife in Pennsylvania meant that you had to be a registered nurse first. And I had an aha moment. I had no interest in treating sick people and I didn't want to touch body parts and 
<laughs> and I, like, what was Perhaps I thinking? Perhaps nursing is not the, not the career for, for you. Not for me. But it, I think what it speaks to is that we're so naive. We have these romanticized ideas about what we think we want to do. And that's probably why so many kids now have internships, so they can see what the job is really well, about. it's brilliant, isn't it, to do that? So now I had invested in some of these courses, and I'm trying to think, how do I pivot this? Um, and I decided to try to shape a major that had healthcare in it, um, but not as a direct hands-on provider. Mm -hmm. I had some wonderful mentors Mm -hmm. at Penn, um, two extraordinary professors, both women, um, who took me under their wing and helped me shape a major that was called healthcare management. Now today, most universities have healthcare degrees, both undergraduate and graduate, Mm -hmm. but in the 70s, um, there were only a handful of MBA programs, and they were more hospital administration. It wasn't a, there wasn't a healthcare industry, so to speak. Right. There were insurance companies, and right. that was really it. Right. So um, it's kind of a long story, but I ended up wanting to get an internship because I was competing with MBA students. Mm-hmm. I actually designed my own major through the Wharton MBA program, even though I was an undergrad. And I had to get special permission, but because I had a 4.0. I had strong grades. They were willing to work with me. Right. Um, and it really was the beginning of an interdisciplinary education that mm-hmm. today is taken for granted. But in those days, you really had to stick in the color in the lines. Yes, right, right. So um, I had difficulty competing because at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, they had their pick of graduate students who had five to 10 years of business experience. Okay. And I was a junior with no no relevant experience in healthcare. Let's get back to the air conditioning contractor. My father said to me, I think I know someone who might have hospital connections. Let me see if I can make a phone call. And in all honesty, I said to my dad, you know what, I really appreciate your help, but you don't know anybody. In, <laughs> you don't know anybody in business. So here's a lesson. My dad's an air conditioning contractor. He may not have had business contacts, but his customers did. Of course, yes. So who was one of his customers? In the 50s, he put an air conditioning unit in a pharmacy for a pharmacist named Leonard Abramson, who was the founder of what later became U.S. Healthcare that was acquired for $9 billion by Aetna. So... My dad knew him from the days when he put his air conditioner in the drugstore. There you go. Um, and he called Lynn and said, look, my daughter wants a health care internship. Maybe you can introduce her to somebody at a hospital. And Lynn said, well, why doesn't she come here and talk to us? So the deal was I wasn't supposed to know that my dad made the phone call. Uh-huh. He said to Lynn, you're so stubborn. She's so stubborn. If, if, you, if, you, if she knows that you're behind the scenes agreeing to this she won't she won't come in yeah so the deal was i went in made the phone call myself thinking i was scoring my own appointment and yeah. that's how that's i got hired that's a great story that's a, and a good lesson we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be uh, back in the studio with Heidi Gray president and co-founder of the 200% company Are you looking for a photographer? Would you be interested in one of the best in the business? Look no further. Peter Gallo has been photographing people, places, and things in the United States and Europe for over 40 years and loving it. He specializes in the best possible photography given any subject matter. His experience has taken him around the world shooting everything from conservative corporate affairs to personal portraits to fashion and the world of arts. Peter Gallo is a true professional, determined to capture every image in its best possible light and does so with the utmost creativity and dedication. If you need help with any project, contact Peter at 215-592-8024 or email petergallo17 at gmail.com. To hear about this week's specials on corporate portraits and headshots, simply Google Peter Gallo Studio and you will be taken directly to his website. Or again, call 215-592-8024. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. 
Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks. And some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the Mutual Fund Store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face-to-face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your Mutual Fund Store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the Mutual Fund Store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Want your home to look great for company from out of town? Moving to a new place? Or just want the satisfaction of a clean, healthy home? Whatever your reason, everybody needs to clean. So why not choose the line of cleaning tools that makes your task easier? Quickie is your one-stop cleaning solution with everything you need to get the job done right. Whether you're cleaning one room or the whole house, Quickie has the right tool for the job. It doesn't matter if you prefer a more traditional mop and bucket or if you'd like to save time with a new Quickie spray mop. Quickie has everything you need to get the job done. Founded in Philadelphia over 60 years ago, Quickie's commitment to quality and value have helped it grow to the number one cleaning tool in America. It's Quickie and it's clean. Look for Quickie products at Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, ShopRite, and other fine retailers near you. Do you know Saltz Matkov? Would you like a legal team with over 100 years of experience working for you to defend litigation in the areas of business and contract disputes, employment, transportation and aviation, products and premises liability, intellectual property and construction? We are Saltz Matkov and we can help. From Wall Street to Main Street, we represent Fortune 500 companies and small businesses alike, achieving successful results inside and outside of the courtroom. For a free consultation, contact us at 484-318-7225 or visit us on the web at saltsmatkov.com. That's S-A-L-T-Z-M-A-T-K-O-V.com. Large firm expertise for a fraction of the cost and with all of the personal attention you need. Serving Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Call 484-318-7225 or go to saltsmatkov.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. This morning, I'm in the studio with Heidi Gray, who is president and co-owner of the 200% Company. And um, I'd like to, to get right into your business and what you're doing. Um, as I was preparing for the interview, I looked at um, your website, of course, and you have a wonderful video on there that really speaks to the message of what you do. And something that you said that I, I really loved was you said, basically, what we do is answer a call for help. Talk a little bit about what, what that means to you uh, and the business. Well, in terms of the business, we're here to help companies that want to grow and may not have the internal talent to know how you build a growth engine. And when we talk about it, we're not just talking about the sales team, although that's a big part of it. It's also about helping a company understand what kind of a foundation do we need to provide in order to have a company that can grow in the marketplace, but sustain that growth. They have to be able to digest what they bring in. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what we do for a living. And um, I guess in terms of the help, we have two extremes in terms of our clients. Sometimes we're talking to a startup. Um, It might be a scientist or um, an engineer, somebody in IT, and they have a great business idea. Maybe they've gotten investors, and they have a clear mission. They're passionate, but they have no idea how to scale a business. So they have lots of advisors helping them. But the basic building blocks of how do I go out and get a customer and keep a customer, and what do I have to do on the inside so that we we take care of business, they don't get that anywhere. Right. So we try to create that platform, um, and we nurture that 
we build the infrastructure, and I, I like to call it sales intelligence. We really want to mentor the leadership team at a company so that they can begin to understand what it means to have a growth-driven company. The other extreme might be um, a well-established company. I've had clients as large as $50 million, and they hit a plateau, and they get stuck. And then the question is, how do we reinvent ourselves? How do we reinvigorate our sales activities? And inevitably, what we find is there's always issues within the sales team that mm -hmm. have to be addressed, but there's usually something else, and that's the platform. That's right. the infrastructure or the culture. If it's operationally focused and it really isn't thinking about what do we need to do to be a growth company, um, they might be at odds with each other. So we help larger organizations to understand how internal barriers may be preventing them from the growth that they can achieve. And I mean, at the end of the day, we help businesses achieve their potential. It's a fun way to earn a living. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I jumped right to that video but not because I love that statement, but we should backtrack a little bit because okay. I'd like to know how the business got started. Um, you know, we, we were talking before the break about uh, your uh, position with HMO. And tell me what happened between then and, and founding this company. Well, I think that the opening statement that I would make is that my career was never driven by a single purpose, and I have to own that. I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have an agenda. I had a summer internship. And it ended up offering me a job. I stayed there for 17 years. Oh, that um, The company exploded and had so much internal opportunity that I, I not only moved up the sales ladder, so I was a sales rep, then I was a senior rep, I was a manager, I was a vice president. I went through that hierarchy. But because the company was growing so quickly, I had the opportunity to do things that were way outside of my range of experience in sales. So launching a startup, hiring the staff, figuring out what the office was going to look like, learning about HR policy. Mm -hmm. um, at one point in, the, in my career, I left sales because I was a mom and I didn't want to work 70 hours a week. And I was realistic about the balance. Um, and I went into the operational side of the business. So I ran the clinical nursing, the, the case managers, the utilization review department, and I learned what it mean to have what it meant to have a staff, uh, a twenty four seven call center. I learned how to be an operational manager. And were you able to do that part time? Um, actually, yes, three days okay. a week. Um, let me also say, now that the business is um, has transformed to Aetna, it was not sanctioned. It was very difficult for me. Um, I had my son in 1990 and my daughter in 1992. And when I came back to work and said, I love this place, I built it with my sweat and tears, and I have no interest in leaving, but I'm, I'm ready to make a change. They allowed me to make the change, but I lost my officer status and my stock options. And um, basically, a slap on the wrist the message that was given to me, actually, fairly explicitly, you can stay here, but you're never going to get a promotion, and you're never going to get a raise. Um, and I spoke with some folks in HR, and they said to me that the concern was that other women in the company, if they saw that, because I was one of the original team, mm -hmm. if they saw that a high-level executive was permitted, that's how they phrased it, permitted to go part-time, that there would be a floodgate. There would be this unmanageable demand of people wanting to go part-time. And my comment back was, well, wait a second. Let's agree that not every person can do a part-time job and not every role is, is appropriate to be part-time. So I took myself out of sales and sales leadership because I knew that that wasn't a job at U.S. Healthcare that you could do part-time. Um, but what I said to my boss at the time was, give me 90 days. And if I can't turn this department around, it was in crisis, I said, give me a chance. And if I can't do it, fire me or demote me or put me in some other position. But within those 90 days, I was able to turn around the department and I got a lot of support from the staff. They were eager, to, they, they wanted it to be better too. And um, you know, I think that that was an incredible lesson in terms of, in those days, what the expectation was for professional women. Mm -hmm. Most of the women at US Healthcare were at the executive level, they were the primary earners. 
So they weren't going part-time because their husbands were depending on them for the bulk of their income. Um, if you looked at some of the, the lower-level employees in terms of where hourly workers or the different staff, they couldn't afford to go part-time because they were just trying to keep their, you know, keep their kids in school and, f- and put food on the table. So I don't think that there wasn't a revolution. And in fact, I think for two or three years, no one else requested to go part-time. But it certainly um, changed my relationship to my work and to my company, and it changed my sense of loyalty. And I began to think about what else I could do. Right. Where you wouldn't have that uh, that worry about somebody's going to you know, let me go. Well, you know, the interesting thing is that the division that I was running outperformed the parent company in terms of growth and profitability. So I wasn't looking over my shoulder and thinking that I was going to be terminated for underperformance, but it also became rather inconvenient because now they have a part-time person who's outperforming the full-time people. And in those days, there was no model for how to job share or how to create a a creative role where it didn't look like everybody else. There was no place for that in that organization. And it's interesting because I thought to myself, here's a business whose entire industry opportunity was created around the idea of innovation and changing the status quo from insurance companies, crisis intervention to proactive preventive care. And that was so novel and so creative. And I remember saying to the chief operating officer near the time I was leaving, I said to him, why does our innovation stop at our front door? So we're only innovative in the marketplace, but in terms of our employee practices, we're, we're still going to be in the 1950s. And guess what? That's where they were back then. Yeah, and that was in the 90s. Is that the early 90s? Um, yeah, that was in the 92, 93. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So I stayed there until 98. So it wasn't like I left because I, I had my children in 90 and 93. And honestly, I think I did some of the best work of my career. It wasn't sales, but I, I think I learned about people and how to manage them mm-hmm. and and what what was necessary to get teams to perform. Um, and I, I really got to understand both sides of the business because I had spent so much of my career in the marketplace with customers, and now I was really understanding what happens once we get a customer. Right. Um, so I never look back with anything other than uh, gratitude mm-hmm. um, for, in 17 years, 27 different roles um, some amazing mentors and lifelong friends that continue to be very, very supportive. You know, that was my next question. I always love to ask this question about mentors. And if you could talk about somebody in your life that really you always felt wanted the best for you. Well, I, I hope that there were men, many, but I think Len Abramson was um, Certainly, the highest profile mentor that you could have. I mean, he's a, he's a billionaire, and he's he transformed an industry. Mm-hmm. Um, his generosity, his humanity. I think um, you know, relentless business savvy, but um, his kindness is something that anyone who knows him will will talk about. Um, the other thing is, I met my husband at U.S. Healthcare. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's a big deal. So, um, you know, I guess I have to talk about him a little yes. bit. But in, in the context of, of Mr. Abramson, um, when we were dating, as, as old-fashioned as the company was in some ways, they were very open about people having relationships with other employees. That was not an issue. It was started, it was a family company. Mm-hmm. So, Len's idea was, if you like working here, and you're committed and passionate, and you bring in your cousins, your kids, your spouse, he loved the fact that both of us were paying our mortgage on his salary. You know, he loved that, (laughs) that that we we depended on the success of the company for our own personal livelihood. Mm -hmm. So he was very supportive. My husband, um, Angelo DeVita, is an Italian Catholic from coal mining country. And as you know, I said, I'm a Northeast Philadelphia Jew. (laughs) And um, it was very traumatic in my family when we made the decision to get married. We dated for five years, um, and although we weren't secretive about it, he was not allowed in my house. 
So my parents did not know him at all. He was a stranger to us. And while we dated, and certainly everyone in the workplace knew that we were dating, Len was very supportive of our relationship. Um, We once joked, is he like a captain of a ship and could he marry us in the atrium? (laughs) 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 Could could, could we just take care of it here and deal with all the other stuff later? Oh my gosh, that Uh, must have been so difficult. It it was. Um, It was, but Len once called us into his office and he said to us, we just came back from a trip to Israel. He and his family had just been. And he said, I went to the Stations of the Cross and I went to the Western Wall and I saw the history and here's what I want to tell you. He said, it's all man-made and nothing should keep you two from being together. So we we won't get into the religious theology, but suffice it to say that his his thought was if two people are committed, they should find a way to be together. And that sensitivity was an extraordinary uh, gift, especially coming from someone in your professional life. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I think about how many opportunities he gave both of us, um, and when my son was born, he put Charlie's picture up on his credenza, and it was... Are you still in touch with him today? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. we don't see him very much. He he uh, lives in Jupiter, Florida, and Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, but my father just told me he bumped into him. At, I think at synagogue, maybe they saw each other. Okay. So he's in our neighborhood, and his granddaughter Stephanie and my daughter Elizabeth were very close friends through their time going up to, through school. Yeah. So yeah, that's nice. That's yeah. a great story. Um, we're going to take one last quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk all about the two hundred percent company. Want your home to look great for company from out of town? Moving to a new place? Or just want the satisfaction of a clean, healthy home? Whatever your reason, everybody needs to clean. So why not choose the line of cleaning tools that makes your task easier? Quickie is your one-stop cleaning solution with everything you need to get the job done right. Whether you're cleaning one room or the whole house, Quickie has the right tool for the job. It doesn't matter if you prefer a more traditional mop and bucket or if you'd like to save time with a new Quickie Spray Mop. Quickie has everything you need to get the job done. Founded in Philadelphia over 60 years ago, Quickie's commitment to quality and value have helped it grow to the number one cleaning tool in America. It's Quickie and it's clean. Look for Quickie products at Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, ShopRite, and other fine retailers near you. It's really tough for an everyday investor to find honest, personalized investment advice. Some brokers only push the latest hot stocks, and some financial advisors won't even return your phone call unless your account is worth half a million dollars. That's where the mutual fund store comes in. It's where you talk with your local advisor, someone you can meet with face to face, not somebody wearing a headset a thousand miles away. And your mutual fund store advisor will work with you to design an investment plan to help you get where you want to be. From day one, our advisors track your funds to make sure they're still right for you. Not everyone in the investment business can say that. The client comes first at the mutual fund store with custom investment plans to fit your goals, not ours. To learn more, visit MutualFundStore.com or call the Mutual Fund Store now in East Norriton and Cherry Hill, 877-239-8330. That's 877-239-8330. Are you looking for a photographer? Would you be interested in one of the best in the business? Look no further. Peter Gallo has been photographing people, places, and things in the United States and Europe for over 40 years and loving it. He specializes in the best possible photography given any subject matter. His experience has taken him around the world shooting everything from conservative corporate affairs to personal portraits to fashion and the world of arts. Peter Gallo is a true professional, determined to capture every image in its best possible light and does so with the utmost creativity and dedication. If you need help with any project, contact Peter at 215-592-8024 or email petergallo17 at gmail.com. To hear about this week's specials on corporate portraits and headshots, simply Google Peter Gallo Studio and you will be taken directly to his website. Or again, call 215-592-8024.
Welcome back, everyone, to Women to Watch. I'm in the studio today with Heidi Gray, who's president and co-owner of the 200% Company. And I would love to find out um, all about how you started the business, because uh, a lot of what we do in here is to try to benefit some of the listeners who perhaps have some ideas of being entrepreneurs or, or getting into a new field. And it's always good to hear how someone else took those steps. Um, well, we talked about my long career at U.S. Healthcare. I was there for 17 years. Uh, how did I end up leaving? Well, Len had sold the company to Aetna, and um, my husband was one of 25 people that was protected. He was protected for five years, but there was a mark on his forehead because he was clearly identified as having been with the old group. Oh, right. And um, he was approached at one point to be a CEO of his own company. And it was a dream come true for him. And he knew that he wouldn't have um, the same kind of career opportunities with the Aetna team it was in place. So he left to, st to start a company with a physician. And as they understood what the business model was, they recognized that they were going to need someone to build the physician network. Well, my husband said to the physician, the best person I know for building physician networks happens to be the person I'm married to. What do you think? So I interviewed um, with the physician, and he said, let's go. Um, they were b building a... Um, an anesthesia company for office-based physicians. It's a little-known secret, and it's much different now, but in the late 90s, um, it, many physicians were providing surgery, whether it's oral surgery or plastic surgery, but they didn't have an anesthesia professional attending at the surgery. So their business model was to have a network of anesthesiologists that would go on site to various doctor's okay. offices. So my job was to go around and recruit the anesthesiologists. The night before I was supposed to start my new job, now mind you, I've resigned after 17 years, mm -hmm. so I walk away from a vice president role. Hard, I'm sure. <laughs> I walk a away family. from stock options and my whole professional life. It's yes. all I knew. Yes. But I was excited about the opportunity. Um, on a Sunday night, the doctor called my husband and said, I've changed my mind. I don't feel comfortable with a husband and wife working together. Wow. So all of a sudden, there I was with no job <laughs> and no plan. Um, in one night. In one night. There yeah. you go. Um, so I... I really had no idea what I was going to do. And again, you know, consistent with my my experience, there was no immediate next step. But serendipity stepped in, and a person said to me, gee, my husband has a healthcare kind of company, and you're in healthcare. Maybe there's an opportunity. And the person hired me on the spot. After an interview, um, it was a small boutique company in an industry that I knew nothing about. But... Healthcare and sales, I'm, I feel like, well, I've done everything else right. that I wasn't trained to do. I can learn this, too. Um, I was hired to create a sales program for a company that did not have a formal sales approach. So they, they had a business, but it was um, they were selling services to pharmaceutical companies. But the people who were selling, so to speak, were not salespeople. They were Ph.D. researchers. And the owner said, gee, I'd always want to know what would it be like if we actually had a formal sales program. Suppose you were to go out and try to sell where I don't have relationships because everything that I have is business that comes to me because people know me. What would it be like if we just went out into the big world and knocked on doors and developed opportunities? So I said, well, let's try it. We tried it for a year. And we went from $3 million to $7 million in 12 months. Wow. It's not a solo effort. It's a company. But there's no question that we changed their trajectory by creating a formal sales process and applying a discipline to what they were already great at. They had a terrific reputation. They had a terrific product or group of services. So they had all the ingredients. But what they were missing was an engine. But did you develop that yes, process you did, did, which is the one you're using today for your well, company? Well, I don't think it was as clearly articulated. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened is recognizing that the important thing about that first job was that I was able to demonstrate through my own will 
and skill and effort that it was possible to to grow a sales organization and to grow a company outside of the U.S. healthcare machine. Because U.S. healthcare had become such a marketing giant. It had powerful advertising. It was the first healthcare company to ever do commercial TV. Mm-hmm. So there was so much noise and um, market opportunity created through that organization that it made my sales job a lot easier. Um, and so there was an assumption that you were successful, but look at the company you had behind you. It's like if you were in sales for Apple and you would say, well, sure, you're successful, but look at the company you're with. Right. So working for a small boutique that didn't have any marketing or advertising and didn't have any sales process and having to make it and build it from the ground up mm-hmm. for me was a proving ground that I was capable that there was something about my training and my insight that I could adapt it to another industry. After the first year, um, the executive balked on the agreement and refused to pay me my commissions. So um, I left on my one-year anniversary. And fortunately, another company, again, serendipity, knocked on my door. They said, we saw what you did at that first company. We're a European company, and we're looking to open in the United States. We'd like you to help launch the business. I did that two or three other times, and after a while, now I have a system. Okay. Okay. Now it's not an accident. Yes. Now it's a very purposeful methodology, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's when I realized that it was time to stop making other people rich, and I had to (laughs) feel... (laughs) You realize I'm doing something right. I've created something here that works. Not only does it work, but I, I can't even put into words how incredibly gratifying it is when you see a startup um, that might be struggling, and you can say, because of what we did as a team, 15 people have jobs. Mm-hmm. 15 families have opportunities to get a house or to get that new car. People's livelihoods are at stake. So right. it's not just, well, isn't it great for me that I can check it off in my list and say, look what I did here. It's the fact that there's a business that then becomes self-sustaining. Right. That, was, that was not. That was struggling. Either was struggling reason. or um, they they didn't know how to they didn't know how to scale. They didn't know how to get out of the gate. Um, they're not always failing companies. Many times they're just lacking the skill to know how do we do this job. I mean, it would be like somebody putting me in an office and telling me to take care of the books. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know where to start. Right. And a system. Let, let's talk about um, the four P's that, okay. that you've determined are really the four areas that any business should focus on to keep the sales going. What you're talking about is a methodology. We knew we had the common sense and we knew we had the results, but we needed some framework to explain this model Mm -hmm. because we really didn't want it to be perceived as just a sales tool. This is really about the entire enterprise growing. So we developed this concept, and again, I must give credit to my husband, Angelo, because it was really his brainchild, and I thank him every day, I hope, for this. (laughs) Um, The four Ps, uh, people, your product, or could be service, your process, and your prospects. Um, prospects being your potential buyers, clients, customers. Um, It seems almost overly simplistic to just name those four buckets, but there's a brilliance behind it because what it allows us to do is, first of all, talk about growth as a business discipline as opposed to, well, the salespeople over there, they're responsible for the revenue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's a way to help a business understand what are the four fundamental components that drive growth. And we use those four buckets, and there's a, um, a scoring system, and that's where the 200% comes, where we literally score a company on a scale of 1 to 50, score your people, score your product, score your process or processes, and your prospects. And we teach people the criteria to use when doing the scoring. But the idea is to focus the management team on how ready are we for growth? If you think about it, lots of companies can put you know, a dart on the wall and say, we want $50 million in revenue, or we want to grow by 120%. But then the question becomes, what does the business need to do to be ready for that growth? Right. The support of that. And I think in my early consulting experience, people were hiring me as a hired gun to just drive crazy growth. 
So you take a company and triple their revenues. Well, the owner was happy, but the people inside the business couldn't keep up mm -hmm. with the growth. The product side might not have been able to sustain itself. They couldn't get deliver on the promises. Um, the customer service people couldn't digest so much demand at one time. And I felt responsible for that. So while the owners maybe were celebrating that they could sell their company for, you know, 25 or 30 million and it had started out as a little boutique, I felt like I wasn't really fulfilling the promise if I wasn't teaching the company how to scale growth in a way that would enable them to sustain it over the long haul. Right. So the four P's help a company to get rid of the jargon, get rid of the silo that you're in, and get rid of the words that you use to think about your piece of the business. So it gives people a common language, and it's not sales speak, right? They're just basic words that everybody understands. And those four components, your people, your product, your process, and your prospects, they apply to a startup as well as a mature company that's been in business right. for 50 years. Right. So it gives us a way to transcend what you think is unique about your industry or what you think is hard. It's not about that. It's mm -hmm. about understanding the four pieces. Yeah. What's, um, I, I would say, wanted to know when you started the company and what year was that? That wasn't that long ago. Uh, 2003. Oh, two. 2003. And how do you market yourself to get clients? Well, uh, in 2003, it was very different than it is now. So in 2003, we really didn't market. We did create a website. It's, um, but that was more, in those days, just having a website established your credibility. It's mm -hmm. very different than today where right. it's about engagement and driving traffic. Um, in 2003, we really didn't market. We took opportunities that came to us mm -hmm. because we were in demand. Networking. N you know, not even, I don't even want to say networking because today I really cultivate that and I actively build that into my time. Mm -hmm. um, in, in 2003, business came to us through investment companies, venture capital firms, board members, and we really had more business than we could handle just from the people who knew us and who knew our work accomplishments. Okay. Um, it's very important for the listeners, if if you're out there and you are a small to mid-sized uh, business and you um, need some help with your growth, what's the best contact information for you, Heidi, for, for people to get in touch with you? Well, the 200percentcompany.com is our website address. We're building a new website, but the old one is still up. But it, it might be confusing to people. Some people know us as PTM Solutions. Um, that was our name in 2003. Um, and the listeners might get a kick out of what PTM really stands for. We didn't like to tell people before, but now that we have a new name, I'll share it. It stood for pay the mortgage. <laughs> so uh, I was I, I was definitely going to ask you what that stood for, because I always want to know. Where yeah. did, you know so that was our is. original concept was pay the mortgage. And it's not an accident that we're now the 200 percent company. The 200 percent company is the actual model that we use to accelerate growth. And it's a trademarked model. It's been published. We have a book. We teach it. Um, we've taught at Drexel and in a number of incubators. But it really also reflects my mindset. In those days, it was really a small boutique, and it was about paying our mortgage. And now it's about 200% growth. Yes, right. It's about more growth than you ever thought possible. Yeah, right, more than 100%. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's great, Heidi. I thank you so much for coming in today and sharing your story as well as your business. And um, if you're listening and you have any questions for Heidi or for myself, uh, feel free to give me a call at 215 313 5561. And again, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Women to Watch here on WWDB AM 860. Have a great week, everyone.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.